And uh, before we get going, um, Dad has something to share uh, in relation to, uh, I think it's going to tie into the word today, but um, in relation to D.L. Moody's campus when we were up there with the 10 of Massachusetts. So uh, I want to ask Dad if you would come and just share that real quick. I was looking, Sarah. Okay, she's got the book, so we give her the book. Well, first, I just want to thank God for this fellowship. Man, that's a bright light over there. Let's get over here. Uh, first, I just want to thank God for being here. You know, this is my seventh year. I was the associate pastor at the Potter's Wheel. And, of course, I've been with Neil for many years beforehand. And, of course, we, we were in the tent, and it was Neil that encouraged me to come here. Now, I had heard a lot about Global Rivers because in Jacksonville, I was the National Day of Prayer Director, Friday night prayer for all the churches for many years, and I knew that Pastor Tom, had, they'd started that Friday night prayer here for the city. But Neil said, Richard, you, you need to come up here. And so that was been seven years ago. Me and Esther drove up on a, on that, on a Sunday, and we ain't left yet. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and I tell people, the church alive is worth the drive. Amen. And, and, and I know in my heart of hearts, I know the prophecy and the heart that Pastor Tom had for this congregation. Amen. And so many things have started happening in our midst. Uh, it's not only the tie with Israel, but also, and I give God all the glory. And listen. You mamas that's got babies and grandparents, you start praying over those kids that God will fulfill those dreams. Because my great-grandmother and my, my grandmother was Pentecostal holiness in 1900 when that tobacco warehouse was there. And they went there, and they were funny people back then. Pentecostals were looked down on because they loved their black brothers and sisters and the natives, and they wore their hair. They didn't put on lipstick, but they knew how to pray down the Holy Spirit. They knew how to speak in tongues. And they prayed that one day that God would use somebody in their family that would be used of God mightily. And it wasn't me. I just blazed the way and that mantle. And then later on we found out the mantle of Barnabas Cashwell was my great uncle. And that, that mantle was passed down, not to me, to my son. But that son is not for my son, as he'll tell you. That mantle is for you. And I'm going to just tell you this. I'm sitting over there praying. I don't know what I heard. I'm just saying this. And I, God, help me get out of the way, son. Michael, make your way up here. Make, Michael... Uh, uh, the book, D.O. Moody. Yes, Hogan, come here. <laughs> I just want, because it wouldn't be possible without the help from Michael Hogan. And what, we're just trying to be led by the Spirit. We're not looking no blue ribbons, not, but I'm going to tell you one thing. I want to put this in your heart. When you hear him, what the message he has today, listen to me. God is raising up a generation. We just stood in the embassy church Friday night where the whole Jesus movement started with Lou Engel before he even got married. And he, he said, it's going to do it again. He's calling those people up there in Washington. He's calling for the, the, the prayer house people from out in Kansas City. We're in there, all the leaders from around. He's calling all of us. And they're believing that it's marked for the Carolinas, the third great awakening. And it's leading up to the Bank of Mary State. And we are very much a part of it. And let me tell you who's going to be a part of it. If you've got a mantle of your own, you better ask God to show you and put it down. Because mantles are going to be passed out to those that don't have a mantle. Amen? Amen. I'm just kidding. That's a, that's a fact. Now, the next thing is, so we do things we don't understand what we're doing. I'm up in Northfield, and Pastor Tom gets bricks from the building, and Michael gets a brick. And I said, well, Lord, where's, well, that's all right. But here, just like in the Mount of Olives, when I got my tallit that was in the synagogue, here comes a little hymnal book. 
that I found after I prayed. And, and I went to pa uh, David there, and I said, David, I've got a book here. It's an old book. It's a, it's a hymnal here from Northfield. And it's, uh, you can ha I want you to have it. It's for you to give to Global Rivers. So I got the book, and, and just like as I started looking at the book, it was the hymnal that raised all the money for all their missions for all over the world. And then we got to study about D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody was a fourth-grade education that led a million men to the Lord in the 18th century. And D.L. Mills mantle was up there, and it, it was missions. And so what we, we started studying, I didn't know about D.L. Moody, but D.L. Moody traveled out with the tent when it left around Lake New York, Tom, in the wholeness movement. He went all across, the, all the way to California. So you know that man was around all them Pentecostals, D.L. Moody. He, he might have went down like a stealth, but he was filled with the Spirit of God, y'all. Right? So now what Amen. happened? In, 1990, in 1893, there was a move of God in the Presbyterian Church down here in Wilmington. And, and, they, were, and they were having fellowship with black, white. Oh, it was a move of God. And they called D.L. Moody down here to preach a revival on, on that Presbyterian Church in 1893. And what they were about was missions. And that church sent missions to China then and is still doing it today. But listen, Michael, t take over about. <laughs> I got, I'm not finished, me and my husband. Just take over from that point how it got here with uh, Phil, Nancy. <clears throat> Dad, um, what he was saying was, uh, you know, your history is important. History. And um, our church, this, if you're here at Global River Church, we have a history and uh, what dad is saying, it started in 1893 in downtown Wilmington when D.L. Moody preached a series of messages on global missions. He didn't know it, but he was prophesying the destiny of this church into existence. And that has woven us together. That first Presbyterian church in the 1920s sent a, a mission Sunday school out here to Myrtle Grove where the white little church is today across from the Home Depot at Monkey Junction. That, that, that Presbyterian Mission stayed there until the 70s when a guy named Horace Hilton from the charismatic movement from Charlotte was sent down here to uh, preach that, in that church, and it exploded. And I know some of you were there, the Smiths and others here, and uh, what they told me is that crowds, I mean, they bustled into the church, and even outside they couldn't fit in, and the spirit of the living God was being poured out. Come on. And that church became Myrtle Grove Presbyterian. And then Myrtle Grove Presbyterian, as it progressed in the charismatic movement, Pastor Steve Mattis came over here and planted the Vineyard Church. And then after Steve Mattis left, Pastor Tom came up and then took us into the Global Awakening Network, where we are today. Is that good? Is that where you're going? Where are they getting ready to go? All right. This is the book. Listen. Now, what we found out was when Barnabas left the tobacco bar warehouse, the first place he urgently went was up in High Point. We got a call in to go to High Point. Was it Friday night, Mike? Yes, sir. Friday night. We went in there <laughs> urgently. And God done a number up there. <laughs> and we didn't even know it, but when Barnabas left there, he went to Washington, D.C., which we ended up going to Washington, D.C. But let me tell you something Amen. that he always done. When he went into a place, as we read his history, Barnabas was so saturated with the love of God that, and that's what changed those holiest ministers. They had never experienced the love of God coming out of a man. But he would walk into a building, wherever he was at, great big stocking man, and he'd say, praise the Lord! <laughs> praise the Lord! 
<laughs> and it was if ever devil and demon had to get out of it. <laughs> Amen. 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 I'm done. Okay. <laughs> What's that family revival, right? Come on. You know what the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is? We can be us. <laughs> it's okay to be you. Isn't that beautiful? Man, that's awesome. So I know I wanted to capitalize that. Um, I know what his heart behind that too was. That book, that devotional four from D.L. Moody, he wanted to add it to the church collection that we had over there with other things. Just kind of as a memorial of uh, our own history. Right, our own DNA. That from that that movement that came here in the 1800s, we are byproducts of that movement. I mean, no accident. Global River, and we're having missions all over the world. So it's just amazing to me how that ties in. Amen. 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 Take your Bibles out to Acts chapter eight, and uh, at some point we we may get there. (laughs) But uh, take take the word out to Acts chapter eight, and uh, we're just going to kind of dive in. And um, I just I just feel. It's already started in the room today. But I heard almost specifically this week, God almost screaming in my ears the word of the Lord for today, for everybody in this room that's going to apply at some level. And you know what that word was? Breakthrough. Breakthrough. I, I mean, come on, man. Did you already feel it in the worship? There is a spirit of breakthrough in the house today. And let me make it real clear. Jesus is the spirit of breakthrough. Jesus is the spirit of breakthrough. And he can break through any barrier that there is. The Bible even says when David is fighting the Philistines, said that when they came up against him, that God broke out like waters coming down. God of the breakthrough. And I just have this thing in my spirit that I can almost point people out right now. I don't know how to describe I can see it so clearly. There are people in this room that are in need of a major breakthrough. You are like hanging on. And there is a breakthrough that God is going to do today. And I'm just going to encourage you, right? Come on. How many could use a breakthrough in some area, for real? So I just want to kind of cast that word and give three perspectives of a breakthrough from a historical perspective a biblical and a prophetic perspective, and, and just where I feel like, too, God has taken the body of Christ corporately. Amen? How many know that the prophecy is given to give us hope for the future? Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on. So uh, I have some slides. If, if you can hit up that first slide. Yeah, as we do, Jesus, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit of God, that you would have your way. We welcome you here, Lord. We already know you're here. We already know you're here. And now, Jesus... I ask that you would just deploy the spirit of breakthrough in this house today. That you would deploy the spirit of breakthrough in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about this breakthrough thing. I like football. Does anybody like football? I I watched the amazing college football game, the championship last Monday. It was the Clemson Tigers in the Alabama Roll Tide. You know, Alabama was supposed to win that football game because they had a tough team. I don't think they've lost in three years, two or three years. It was a repeat of the championship. 
Clemson, they beat in the last championship the year before. But last week, something miraculous happened. But it didn't start off good for Clemson. They went down 14 to nothing right off the bat. And Alabama came to take their heads off. I mean, they came swinging. And they sent a message to the quarterback. Tried to take his head off right out the, 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 the opening gate. And I watched the game and I watched the quarterback. He was just so shaky. It was like he was rattled and he couldn't find the flow. He couldn't find the rhythm. And all of a sudden it seemed like it was going to be a blowout. But then something happened. He made a spectacular play. And in one play, it shifted the momentum of the game. That's how breakthrough happens in the kingdom. Come on. When we walk in this Christian life, right, there's obstacles and there's barriers, there's relational challenges, there's all kinds of things that we deal with. And a lot of times it'll throw us out of sync. It'll throw us out of rhythm. And we try to operate in a place that we're not supposed to be operating from. And it's like we can't ever catch our breath or we can't catch the right step and we're always one step behind. But then all it takes is one moment to shift everything. And that's Jesus. That's him breaking through. Come on, amen? I, uh, Dad talked about Cashwell. I want to talk about his story because it's really potent. And there, there's something here today. I want to talk about real quick, historically, Cashwell was a man of breakthrough. For you that don't know, Gaston Barnabas Cashwell was a holiness preacher in the 1800s in Dunn, North Carolina. True story. He went to Azusa Street and brought the Pentecostal movement back to the Carolinas in the South. And in three years is responsible for converting 12 Pentecostal denominations today. 70 million believers today are the fruit of this man's breakthrough. How many know that breakthrough isn't just for you? It's for those around you. And there's many breakthroughs he said, but specifically for what's important for us today is this. He had a breakthrough in his relationship with the Holy Spirit. He had a major breakthrough in his understanding of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. I feel God is saying to us this year, 2017, we need a new understanding of who the third person of the Trinity really is. And we need to begin to reevaluate our current relationship or our current understanding of what we have inside of us called the Spirit. Cashwell, when he came to Azusa Street, many things happened. But let me tell you something. He was a product of his times. Born in 19, or 1800s, he came up through a revival movement called the Holiness Movement. And for 40 years in our nation, the 1800s to the early 1900s, before the Azusa Street Revival happened, there was a massive holiness movement explosion that rocked the nation. And what happened in this holiness movement was very important because the central theme of holiness movement was this. They taught, they taught that when we are, sanct or when we are justified, in other words, when we ask Jesus to come in our heart, first time salvation, right? We are saved. Our name's written in the Lamb's book of life. But they taught after that encounter, somewhere along the line in the process, we have an instantaneous encounter with God called sanctification. 
They believed it was entire sanctification. In other words, that when you had that encounter with God, it was so gripping that you were literally almost changed overnight and that you had holiness in your heart. John Wesley coined it, called it the perfection of love. And this experience swept the nation. And under meetings and brush arbors and tent revivals and warehouse gatherings, it was falling simultaneously to crowds, three and four and 5,000 strong, instantaneous people laying on the floor, trances. I mean, trances, what is all that about? Crazy stuff happening. But what I want to see, this slide right here, this guy's an example of that time. His name was Alexander Dowie, just an example of what I'm talking about. He came up out of the holiness movement. 1800s, Zion City, Illinois, Chicago. He influenced thousands. And as you can see, the man had an anointing for healing. They would frame all the crutches and the back braces and all the things where people would get healed in the meeting as they were preaching holiness and they would put them up on the wall. What's the point? They taught this thing and they believed it. And God recognized it. Now, would you agree with me that whatever you believe right now in your personal walk with God, your theology, whatever you've been taught to believe, whatever you've experienced that's made up your relationship with the Lord, whatever level you are right now, if you had a evidence of this kind of thing on your life, would you agree he's pretty pleased? I mean, right? Come on. You would, you would agree with me that there's a, there's, God's pleased. Well, I must be doing something right. People are getting healed and affected. There's a peace. Right? All of that was evident in the holiness movement. And then something changed. And that was the old Azusa Street Revival in 1906. And when that busted out through the African-American one-eyed William Seymour and a group of, of humble African-Americans in a run-down black church on 312 Azusa Street, something shifted all church culture overnight. And what was happening was they were experiencing a massive release of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with miracles that just trumped what was happening in the holiness movement. Creative, no, no other record in church history, I studied this for five years, no other record in church history had the measure of creative miracles that was occurring at Azusa Street, none. Not the Great Awakenings, not the Moravian Revivals, not the Methodist Revival. None had that same measure that was happening in Azusa Street. Why was that a challenge? Because the holiness people thought that what they had inside of them called sanctification was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. They taught it. They believed it. They practiced it. And God blessed it. How else could you explain the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They said, this is holiness. This is sanctification. It's the gift that Jesus promised was coming to us from the Father. And for 40 years, could you imagine? 40 years teaching that, believing that, experiencing that. Bible schools, ministries, churches, right? And then a movement comes called Azusa Street. And their primary teaching was this. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not holiness. It is not sanctification, but it comes afterwards. Now, you got to go in their time. What they thought they had 
they really didn't have. What if today you and I have been taught to believe what we have, but it's not really what we think we have? What if it's not really what we think we have? I believe there's more. Don't you? Come on. So did Cashwell. And when he heard the reports, can you hit that next slide? When he heard the reports of what was happening in Azusa Street, Cashwell became so hungry. This is the article that he wrote. This is from 1907. But I just want to use this to pull something from it. He says, two months ago, I began to read in the way of faith, that was a holiness magazine, of the meetings that happened in Los Angeles. I preached holiness for nine years. I mean, he's not a pew sitter. He is a revivalist. I mean, he's leading people to Jesus. He's roving the region. He's he's, he's, he's established preacher. He said, but my soul began to hunger for the fullness of God. The Spirit led me to seek my Pentecost, and after praying and weeping before God many days, he put it in my heart to go to L.A. to seek the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Do you see what happened to this man? He preached that he had the baptism for all these years, nine years, but then he realized he didn't have what he thought he had. The first step in recognizing that you need a breakthrough is knowing that you need a breakthrough. Come on. As simple as that sounds, it's got a little weight to it if you think about it, don't it? Because a lot of times we don't think we need a breakthrough. They didn't think they need a breakthrough. But then when God broke through, they realized they needed it. Because they didn't have what they thought they had. There was more. Now look at that next third. He said, the devil fought me and laid the hand of affliction on my wife and felt it impossible for me to come. And that night I left home. Wife and I prayed and wept before the Lord, and God gave victory. God, man, come on, man. I don't know. That stirs my heart, man. And we both consented, look at this, on our knees, that if we should die, we would be in the order of the Lord. Do you see the struggle that he's having? That's an internal struggle. I mean, they thought they were going to die. Doug Beecham at Azusa East made it very clear, wonderful message. He said these early, early Pentecostals, man, they tasted something that we don't have. He said they sent their caskets ahead of them to the mission field, knowing they would never return home. What kind of hunger did they have inside of them? Do you see what's happening? As he heard the reports, the hunger for the more of God became more important than his normal Routine of life. Where are we on that pendulum? How hungry really are we for the move of God? Like we say we want revival, we pray and we worship and we sing, but do we really want it at the cost that it would actually mess up our normal schedule? And see what happens is, look at this. I'm telling you, I just feel that when you break through, the, the key to breaking through is recognizing, number one, you need the breakthrough. When that happens, there is an automatic shift in your heart, and God begins to give you the grace for hunger. 
Hunger is not something you can fabricate. It's a grace. It's a gift from the Father to want more of him. And Cashwell's hunger wasn't just to get a word. It wasn't just to get a message. It just wasn't to get by. His hunger was that his life would be changed yet again. The second thing that unlocks a breakthrough is you got to activate that hunger. This is where many people miss it because they'll get in that mode and they'll get hungry for the Lord for a season, but they never act on it. They never activate it and it dwindles away and it dies and then they fall back into the same old pattern, the same routine. I want to challenge us this morning. If you are really hungry for the more of God, then what are you doing to activate it? Cashwell stepped on the train and went across the country. He had to take an act of faith to, to, to really shift that hunger. And what happened was God met him, changed his world, and he got baptized with that Holy Spirit. And when he came back to Dunn, brothers and sisters, that dude was a changed man. He encountered something in L.A. that changed his life. But you want to know the beautiful thing about Cashwell's story? I'm going to borrow this word from our leadership series. Beautiful word stuck with me. He was able to take his experience with the Holy Spirit and translate it to other people so that they could also have the same breakthrough he was experiencing. What if as we encounter God today, we translate this experience into tomorrow's day? What if God breaks through today? Can we take that over into Costco or into Walmart or into these other places? Can we really begin to walk in that room and everything begin to change and shift because we're walking on something different? Come on, amen? amen? This is like breaking through. Can you hit the next one? When, when, when he came and opened that warehouse, there was a minister that was a good friend of his, married him. His name was H.H. Goff. He knew him for eight years. He preached with him. He spent time in his living room. He knew his wife. They were friends. And when he had heard about what Cashwell was preaching down in Dunn, that they don't really have what they think they have, he said, man, I got all the baptism spirit that Cashwell's talking about. That dude's crazy. Goes on to say that in the book. But then something happened as the miracles begin to progress and all the explosions of revival begin to break out. He couldn't help. He had to go down to that warehouse to see what was really going on. This is what he wrote. I first heard through the way of faith of this wonderful work, and then Brother Cashwell went to you and got in his Pentecost. I never saw such a change in the man. What if we went home today and our family member said, I have never seen such a change in you. What's happening? I've never seen the power come in those done meetings. I've been sanctified for 10 years Preaching holiness nearly all that time. Listen to me, come on. In thought, I had the Holy Ghost baptism. But the Lord showed that I had stopped. So I laid down my theory and I went in for the Pentecost and I received it. I feel the Lord is inviting us to reevaluate our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I want to challenge us today. 
What if what we have is not what we think we have? What if there's really a whole nother level and measure of the Holy Spirit baptism that we've not even cracked open yet? I want some more. How about y'all? In Acts chapter 8, there's a story, second biblical perspective here of breakthrough. This happens in Acts. I, I was reading this and it just jumped out to me. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, there's a man named Philip. How many have heard of Philip? Philip, filled with the Spirit from Acts 2. He's sent to Samaria to preach the word of the Lord. And something amazing happens. I want you to read this with me. It said, those who had been scattered, in verse 4, preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. And when crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Did you catch that? A lot of people believe, a lot of scholars believe this city is Shechem, where the woman at the well was. He goes down to that city. In that region, he begins to preach the word. He begins to proclaim Jesus, Jesus, the spirit of breakthrough. And something begins to shift in the city. And this word says miraculous signs. Now, what do you think that means? I mean, miracles are happening, right? Would you agree? Miraculous signs. Look what else happens. He did. They paid close attention with shrieks of evil spirits came out of the many. Can you, can you imagine? This is mass deliverance. This is like being in a Global River meeting in the nations and Pastor Tom's doing breaking free and all this mass deliverance is going on. And, and spirits, and I mean, shrieks. What are shrieks? I mean, good Lord. Mass. This is many, this is many mass deliverance happening at a city corporate level. And then many paralytics, I hope I'm saying that right, people are paralyzed and cripples are being healed. God, look, they're popping out of whatever they, I don't know if they had wheelchair, whatever they had, they're popping out of them. They're being completely healed. Cripples, people that were paralyzed, these are, these are spontaneous miracles that are happening as a result of him lifting up Jesus. But the point I'm trying to get us to is that there was a mass revival. Wouldn't you, I would identify that as revival. I mean, I would. I mean, he's preaching the word and all these things are breaking out. But jump down to verse 14. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Thank you. And this is my favorite part. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. If that measure of miracles was breaking out just under the anointing of the Holy Ghost man preaching the word of God, then what happened when the Holy Spirit came into the city? 
Just because we produce miracles, signs, and wonders doesn't necessarily mean you have what you think you have. It doesn't necessarily mean we have that baptism of the Holy Spirit that we've been taught to believe that we had. Because the miracles in and of themselves are not enough to justify. In Mark 16, Jesus makes it clear. These will be the signs of them who follow me who believe. In my name, they'll cast out devils, raise the sick, heal the dead, speak in new tongues. But look at the key word. He doesn't say to those who are sanctified, to those who just baptized in the Holy Ghost, to those who are just this and that, to those who believe. As believers, we have access to the gifts of the Spirit, but it doesn't necessarily mean we have been baptized with the fullness of God, being completely consumed with who he is and expressing his nature. I believe that's where he's taken this ship, and I don't know about you, but I want to go there. Philip released the spirit of breakthrough. The breakthrough is happening in that city. And I believe God is raising up Global River to be a church that will be a breakthrough house in this city, in the region, and even the nation. I even dream of the day that God would break through the entire state of North Carolina, that he would rip out every spirit of addiction, every spirit of pornography, every spirit of lust out of his bride. Man, I live it. When I was in Regent University years ago, my heart was in Carolina, but my body was in Virginia Beach, but my prayer life was in this state because for five years, I asked God for the key to North Carolina. For five years, I asked him for the whole state of North Carolina, believing one day something miraculous like this might happen. He led me to pray that way. Five years, I'm not exaggerating. Five years, four in the morning, three hours a day, contending, fasting two years at a clip. Not because I wanted something, not because I needed to be recognized, but because there was an ache in my heart that God has more. I'm sorry to be so intense right now, but I don't know how to be any other way. I think we need a little intense, don't you? Come on. across this place, God. More Holy Spirit. More Holy Spirit, God. 
more of Jesus. Whoo. Ho. So. Right now, people are getting set free. You are getting set free right now. There are people right now that have been struggling with a generational cycle of deliverance or divorce. You are being set free right now. The spirit of breakthrough breaks generational cycles. I have arrived at a place in my life at 36 years old. And I'm tired of being afraid of man. I'm tired of feeling like I might fail. I'm tired of thinking what other people think about me. I'm tired of it. And I had to have my own inner awakening that I'm not going to please everybody, that I'm not going to make everybody happy. That I have to stay focused to what God's called me to do and set my face like flint. I've been delivered. And it's the most freeing thing in the world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I know I'm not perfect by no means. But I know that I don't have to be. And that is the most freeing thing in the world. Oh, Jesus. If I could open up my whole heart to you, my whole life, my number one motive. You know what? I have a motive. My number one motive is that you as a people, everyone in this room, would experience the greatest personal revival in your own life and the greatest transformation. That's my motive. And that's what drives me to do what I do. And if my breakthrough can become your breakthrough, then I've won. God is one. Jesus is one. And the Lamb is worthy to be praised. Come on.
I've been, I've been studying. I, I've, I've arrived at the place where I've confessed to the Lord personally. You know, I speak in tongues. I've been on the mission field. I've seen miracles. I, I, I've seen these things. But in my heart, there's more. And I've just grown to the place where I, the miracles are great. That's lovely. But I'm in pursuit of something more and different. And that is the burning love of Jesus to be enthroned in my heart and the central thing in my entire life. Come on, man. And so I was, I've been studying this in Cashwell's writings. I just, I feast on them because they're so insightful. And when he described the measure of the Holy Spirit that he received at Azusa, this is how he described it. He said, you know, it's not the love that we receive in the baptism, but it's the lover. You know, we all have a measure of love. He uses the illustration that when you find a spouse and you begin to court them, you have a love for that person in that relationship, right? There is a measure of love you have in your heart for that person. When the engagement comes and you ask them or they ask you to be your spouse, there is a measure of your love. You're knitted with that person. You have a love. But it is not until the wedding night that you receive the lover. And that's how he said love has to go through this process in our hearts. It has to be justified. It has to be sanctified. And then it has to be perfected. And I feel that's exactly what I'm in pursuit of. Because I've recognized, yes, I have a love, and I love people, and I try to love everybody as much as I can, and then love myself too in the right biblical way. But then I also know that my love has limits, because I still get angry, I still get in the flesh, Amber and I still have arguments, I still freak out or something, you know, when my day don't go right, you still have those normal things. But what is in pursuit is that what if there is a place in the heart of God and then the love of the Father that there is no anger. There is no, I'm gonna have a breakdown. There is no, my life's gonna fall apart. Or there is no worry. There is completely no fear. How would you like to live your life without an ounce of fear in it? And we have it in the word. First John says the perfection of love drives out all fear. So maybe that's that love. Maybe it's about this baptism. I don't know. Maybe there's something to this thing that God wants to open us up to and to seek after more of that love in our own hearts to go through that process. Jesus. I'm all over the place. 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to land the plane. <laughs> yeah, forget landing. Let's just keep flying. No connecting flight. Come on. 1 Corinthians 13, I just, I, I don't know, I, I'm a Bible nerd, geek. I burn with this stuff. 1 Corinthians 13, it's in the context of spiritual gifts, 12 and 14. Corinthians were all, it was out of whack. Gifts were flowing, things were happening, but there was, there was something off. Paul brings correction, he brings clarity, he brings truth to the situation. And in chapter 13, or even before that, he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Oh, don't you love it? And in verse 1, he says, look at this. If I speak 
and the tongues. This word tongues here in Greek is glossa. Speak is leoia. Put them together, you have glossolalia, same word used in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out and they spoke in language or languages. If I speak glossolalia in the tongues of men, now he's talking about native tongue. In Acts 2, they had a native tongue. How is it that these Galileans are speaking our own language? It was a direct download of Hebrew, Greek, or whatever language. He said, if I speak in the languages of men, and how many know and is a conjunction, and of angels. Did you know that there's a, a language of angels in the angelic realm? Right? Diverse kinds of tongues. Multiple gifts of tongues. But I have not love. I'm only a resounding clong or a clanging cymbal. And the simple but clear truth to that is you could speak in the tongues of angels. And you could speak in the tongues of men and not have an ounce of love in your heart. That's the whole point of this message. We can produce miracle signs and the wonders on the basis that we've been saved, but that does not necessarily mean love rules our hearts. I, I want to have love rule my heart because, I, and he says, eagerly want prophecy, eagerly want, he, he says, you need, you have to, it's good to have a desire for the gifts, especially if they're in the right reason. But I also believe what he's saying in context is, but if you go after love, they'll follow they will follow right in path. Skip down to verse 10. This for me was eye-opening. And when the perfection comes, the imperfection will disappear. When I was a child, I, I reasoned like a child, but let me go back. When the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, how many know the body of Christ is diverse and we believe in a lot of different things? There's a conservative tribe, right? A lot of conservatives evangelicals, which I love, God knows I love, and they just have different views of the Bible than we do. And one of the classical views is that that passage, when the perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. They believe that is the word of God. They believe that is the canonized Bible. And so they've used that to kind of rule out that gifts, healing, tongues, prophecy is not for today's church. And that you're actually operating out of apostasy if you teach and believe that. That's, that's what it says. But I do believe the context that Paul is talking about is not the canonized Bible. He's talking about love and the perfection of love in the midst of gifts. Because we don't we know that when we, the gifts that we all carry, they operate at an imperfect measure. Let's be real, right? It says we prophesy in part, we know in part. There's an imperfection in all of our giftings how it is. But I believe what Paul is saying, but there is a place in the perfected love of God that we can encounter that would flush away all the impurities out of our giftings. So I'm just dreaming in my own personal journey with God. What if there was another baptism encounter that God was going to send to his church a baptism that was far different than what we had when we got Holy Ghost and began to speak in tongues? What if it was an entirely different baptism? What if there was something that's never been released before in all of church history and God has been saving it for this generation? I believe it with everything in me. 
And it gives me great hope. And that would be that burning love of, why, why would God want to do that? What would be, the, what would be the, the product? What would be the purpose of God sending another wave of baptism in church history? I'll tell you why. Because it would flush out all the impure motives in his bride. And he would bring us into complete unity. Trusting one another, loving one another, and serving one another. Being real with one another. How many want to belong to a church like that? Come on. I believe it's coming. We're getting there. We're getting there. Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end. In, uh, last, here's. Whew. Let me have uh, the next slide, please. So I begin to dream. I just want to, the last perspective here. Prophetic perspective of what I believe God is coming and how he's preparing us for this. I begin to dream about this baptism of fire or I don't even know how to word it, but another baptism of the Holy Spirit more than what we currently have right now in the church. And I thought I was crazy. I thought this is, man, people don't think I'm a heretic. I'm, I'm, I'm going out there. But the more I studied it, the more I just pursued Jesus and, and more I begin around other like-minded people, I hear the same thing. God is speaking the same thing. He's speaking the same thing to, to other people. And that was so encouraging. Let you know you're not off the farm too much. Hey, but God did give me a bomb. I'm just share this. Like this, I felt like this was like a bomb, a revelation. I said, Lord, I was studying about the baptism in the early church, and the Lord said, Michael, in Acts chapter two, I released the baptism of the Holy Spirit to birth my church, because that's what it did. He said, but in the final days, I'll release a baptism of fire that will harvest my church. Come on. Woo! And that this thing would be not unto another movement or denomination or thing. This thing would be unto a billion plus soul harvest. The greatest revival that we have ever seen. So I begin to think about Matthew 3.11 that says he comes, Jesus himself, to baptize us with Holy Spirit and, conjunction, Fire. What I have studied is that I cannot find a numerical value that the Bible places on how many times we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not in there. I invite you to journey with that search. So this is what I've said in my own life. Woo, Jesus, if it takes 100 baptisms to make me more like you, then I desire to go every one of them. Come on. Okay, here's real cool stuff. And then we're going to just pray for people. William Seymour, he led the Azusa Street Revival. I begin to find in research that there was a collection, a small collection of prophecies pointing to this baptism of fire at a future generation. So I just kind of want to hammer this out. Seymour, who led the Azusa Street Revival in 1906, around 1913, prophesied this message in a book. He said that in about 100 years, there would be an outpouring of God's spirit and his Shekinah glory would return to the church. Wow, it would, when it returned, it would be greater and further reaching than what was experienced at Azusa Street. Wow, come on. You know, when we went to Azusa now, Lou Engle made it clear to us that there were some 40, some 40,000 African pastors who were fasting for an entire year for the fulfillment of William Seymour's dream to come forth. Whew. Can you hit the next one? 
There was another revivalist, Smith Wigglesworth. Has anybody ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? He was also a product of Azusa Street, powerful, powerful healing ministry in England. And in uh, year 1947, he had a vision of a coming move of God in the last days. And this is what he said about it. The first move will be characterized by a restoration, look at that, of the baptism of gifts and the Holy Spirit. The great revival, Wigglesworth says, will explode when those who emphasize the word will come together with those who emphasize the spirit. And I believe Wigglesworth had a a vision in his day of a day when Baptists would hold hands with Pentecostals and Catholics would march with Lutherans and charismatic apostolic crazy people would wash the feet of Lutherans and whatever. Come on, right? I mean, that just burns image. Unity. Hit that next one. This is my favorite. John G. Lake. Crazy, awesome revivalist, out of Azusa Street, went to Africa, unto, I mean, just legendary revival stories. He comes back to Spokane, Washington. He establishes healing rooms, right? The mayor of Spokane declares it the healthiest city in America because of the spontaneous healing breaking out in their healing rooms. So listen to this. John G. Lake, who was at Azusa Street, who knew William Seymour, who received his baptism in that warehouse, If anybody has a right to say these words, it's him. Fifteen years later, at the end of his life, he's writing a sermon and preaching it to a crowd about his baptism encounter. And in it, he declares a prophecy. Read this. You dear folks, listen, who are trying to pump a Pentecost that has won out years ago. God let it die. I mean, we'll put that in perspective. In 1994, there was the Toronto Revival outbreak, the Father's Heart of God, the identity message that we've all been swept into. It'd be like us saying, quit trying to pump that well at Toronto, it's ran dry. Do you see the context? There are many degrees in God and in the baptism of the Holy Ghost as there are preachers who preach it. Oh, my Lord. God baptized me in the Holy Ghost with a wonderful baptism according to the understanding I possessed 10 or 15 years ago. But I am a candidate today for a new baptism. Come on, the Holy Ghost. Does that not raise your faith? Here's the prophecy. And beloved, somebody say one day. There are going to be Christians baptized in the Holy Ghost who are way up in the throne of God, and that is the experience that is going to make the sons of God in the world. The reason I love this the best is because he connects a coming baptizing movement of God's spirit with the maturity of a bride who is walking in the fullness of identity as sons and daughters. Do you see what he's saying? He's like, look, I had a wonderful baptism at Azusa Street, but I only had it according to the understanding I had when I was a wee baby Christian. But one day God will have a bride who's mature in who they are, and it will be that generation that will have access to the greatest outpouring of the fire of God that has ever been poured out in the face of the earth. And it will be that generation who will put the crown on King Jesus' head when he returns. Come on. 
Okay, that's on that. I'm, this is the really last part. I believe we can hasten to return to Christ. Do you understand what I mean by that? I believe hunger in us compels him to come quicker. I won't go there. This is another time, but I'm going to walk us to it. I'm going to walk us to it. What if I told you? I've always been taught that the Holy Spirit baptism was never poured out with tongues and all that till Acts chapter 2. Would you agree with me? If you believe that or been taught that, I mean, that's a common, charismatic, Pentecostal thing. And what I've always believed until I studied the word and I found this crazy revelation. And even John chapter 7, it says this. Jesus says, look, John says, the spirit up until that point had not been poured out yet. John 7, when he's at the Feast of Tabernacles. But in Luke chapter 1, in the story of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and Zechariah, we have an account that all three were filled with what? The Holy Spirit. The word filled, play throw in Greek, is the same word that Luke uses in Acts 2 to describe what happens in the upper room. It's the same baptism. What about tongues? We'll leave this for another day, but I encourage you to search it out. Zechariah had a speaking problem. He didn't believe and his tongue was shut up. He couldn't speak. But when he came into alignment with the truth, said, my son's going to be John. He wrote it down. said his tongue was loosed. Glossa leoya. Speak in languages. It's the same word in Acts 2-4. The same word in Acts 8. The same word all through Acts Glossolalia, Zechariah prophesied over his son in languages. What's the point? Well, if the word says the Holy Spirit had been poured out yet, then how do we explain that? Because of hunger. Hunger has the ability to pull something in from heaven before the appointed time. And they were the first fruits of the Holy Spirit baptism that was to come, that laid a foundation for the Messiah Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. How could John present a kingdom in front of a people if he had not experienced it himself? What are you saying? Well, how does that relate to me? Because you are the first fruits of this baptism that God is going to send from heaven that will lay a foundation in America, if you have faith to believe for it, it will lay a foundation in America. Caswell's story shifted America. This could shift the nation in the nations if you want to answer it. Stand with me. Jesus. Uh, can I have the, the worship team to come back up? Man, I, I just, we can't leave because I feel... I know we're going a few minutes over, but hang with me because I still feel God wants to do something. The spirit of breakthrough. You know, sometimes when you prepare messages, you got notes and all this stuff, and then sometimes it's like you got to throw everything out and just go for it. That was one of those days. But I, I believe God is inviting us to something. Listen, something is shifting, y'all. I know me, we may, it may be almost like rhetoric, but I'm telling you, I don't know if you can feel it in your spirit. Something really is changing. Something is really shifting right now. 
And there, there is a new hunger being released from heaven. It's, it's a new grace being released that God is really using that to spark uh, uh, just like a catalyst inside of us to get more of God so that our lives can be changed and that we can see other people's lives change. The most beautiful thing about breakthrough is that, yes, we break through for us, but other people get in on that breakthrough. But just remember, and you, and you guys can, can, can we go into spirit of the living God? Is that okay? Yes, or spirit of the living God, the first song we sung. Fall afresh on me. I just feel that. Um, someone, someone needs a breakthrough today. I want you to just begin to pray with me right now. Just close your, close your eyes, bow your heads. And let's just begin to lock into what God was saying to us today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Me and Mike and Dad went on a trip to High Point and in D.C. with these leaders gathering. On the way in High Point, the pastor there said, listen, have you ever heard of the song, Spirit, Fall Afresh on Me? I said, wow, yeah, I, I know Bethel remade it. And he said, no, the original song, I said, I said, he said, yeah, they remade it, but have you ever seen the history on it? I said, no. He said, there was a man from Lumberton, North Carolina in 1926. He heard of a Holy Spirit meeting in Florida. He went to Florida. He was a Presbyterian pastor. Didn't believe in this stuff. He went down to Florida and he heard a doctor give an eloquent speech on the Holy Spirit. It struck him. He left that conference and went to the Presbyterian church in downtown Orlando. No one was there, but the door was open. He went and he sat down at the piano and he wrote the song, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. It's an ancient sound that has an ability to break ancient strongholds. And this is what God said to me, to you right now in this moment. You have been carrying cycles of generational curses and things in your family's bloodline and in your inheritance. And right now we are stepping into a moment outside of time. And as we sing this song, I'm telling you, the spirit of breakthrough is gonna be released in this church. And things that you have been struggling with for a long time will today finally be broken. So this is, if it's okay, if we, I want to stir up, the, there's a river right now in the spirit. I want to stir that up first. I want to stir that up first. And how are we going to do this? Let's just sing this song with everything we have. Let's stir it up. I want to just go after this song. And then after that, then I want to call people forward and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for everyone that needs a breakthrough. So let's just get in that place. Let's just sing this song to the Lord. God, we thank you now that you're in this place. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Just begin to cry out to the Lord.